Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to The Shapes of Stories, a podcast with me, Lawrence Prestige, as your host. Stories come in all shapes and sizes, whether it be from our favourite books, our life experiences, or the day-to-day challenges and issues we face in the world today. Yes, I've got a really interesting um, episode for you guys today. Um, it's the final episode of the of our little series, the series two. I can't believe it. It sounds, you know, feels, I suppose it feels like only like a month or so ago, I was talking to Donald Sturrock for our first episode. Um yeah, all about Roald Dahl, and <laughs> that was a really fun, interesting episode. For those of you who haven't checked it out yet, be sure to have a listen. Um, but yeah, today my guest is um, Emma Kenny for this episode. Um, Emma Kenny is uh, a really, really interesting guest to have. Um, you know, she's a psychologist. You may have seen her on this morning. You may have seen her on different news channels or documentaries as well. And we cover quite a lot. Obviously, you know, she's been quite outspoken about her feelings about um, lockdown and COVID and how the government are dealing with it. And she's she's had a bit of a backlash about that. And um, even when people have called for her job, you know, for her head to be sort of gone from this morning and stuff like that. So... Yeah, it was really interesting to get, get Emma's thoughts on that and, um, you know, seeing how she's been doing over this last year, really. And, yeah, it was really interesting to talk to her about um, the feelings that we're all going through um, over the last uh, last year. And those of you that are familiar with Emma's career might know that she's been involved in a lot of crime documentaries. Um, you know, she's covered some of the biggest crime stories in the, in the, in the country. And... Um, yeah, so it was really interesting to talk to Emma about some of them. We talked about the Jimmy Savile case. We talked about um, Mick Philpot. Um, you know, I think I spoke to her about the Michael Jackson story as well. Um, so, yeah, it was really interesting to talk to Emma. And without further ado, here is my chat with Emma Kenny. So how, how have you been doing um, this last yeah i suppose oh i mean it's just been waves doesn't it of different kind of feelings yeah i've definitely felt a little bit unhappy about the way that mental health has been treated and i'm certainly Mm. struggling with the way that we're being restricted but i also understand that a lot of people have got a whole heap of feelings about the way that people have got ill and died and all the issues around it but Mm. certainly on a mental health level i've not enjoyed it i've got two children who've not been in school now for such a long time and they're in the final years of GCSEs and the final year of A-levels. So it's just been catastrophic. And I think that I always experience the world really personally. I'm not somebody who stands back from my feelings. I just acknowledge them and sometimes share them. So there's been a rude awakening around what you're allowed to say this year and what you're not allowed to say in the past year. And that's been, again, a real shock. It's not something Mm. I'll ever stand for or accept. But yeah, because because you've spoken out about like the lockdowns and things like that on social media and stuff like that. And have, you, have you been surprised the amount of sort of backlash you've got? I guess out of some of them, because like you say, you're just expressing an opinion. You're not sort of really yeah. ridiculing anyone. But have you been surprised at some of the comments that you've got? Absolutely, because yeah. I just don't ever think I'd take time out of my day to be abusive to anybody. 
even if I disagree with somebody, I would never think about being a troll or I would never think about taking what they've said out of context and put it in the mail on Sunday, for example. I would never do that because I think that as human beings, we have a duty to be responsible and accountable for our behavior. And as human beings, we have to do our best to do as little harm. So personally, what was shocking was my overestimation of other people's kindness, I would guess, and my underestimation of other people's conscious understanding and ability to be compassionate to different opinions. So it's been helpful because one of the things it's taught me is that really as a human race, we have to think about a better way of communicating and also that we have to be braver about the way that we feel, even if that causes us loss. But you don't get to test yourself unless you're put in positions where you lose. Mm -hmm. And then when you lose, you're like, that means I've got integrity and that's yeah. okay. Yeah. And you've, you've, I mean, you've stayed true to who you are as well, I suppose, because I suppose the easiest thing for you to would have been done was to stay quiet. Cause you know, you think if you're positioned on this small in you know, this morning and sort of not you know, sharing your feelings out too much, it'd been easy just to kind of, Oh, I'll just sort of keep my opinions to myself, but you haven't done that. You've come out and said, look, this is how I'm feeling for those who want to agree or feeling the same way. And this is how I'm dealing with it. Um, but it, how, was it difficult, I suppose, you know, with people throwing at your position in this morning, on about this morning, you know, sort of that had to come as part of the deal almost? I mean, I think that this morning were incredibly lovely and understanding and they really care about mental health. And so everything that I've ever talked about has come from a mental health perspective or the way that the NHS deals with certain things and using their models to say what I think. So I think that you'll always have a salacious press who just want to make stuff up. And I've accepted that again. That was a shock. But for me, my place in places in the press have always been around mental health. Mm-hmm. And because of that, there is a problem at the moment because you say about mental health, but people then say, well, you're not thinking about physical health, but I am because you don't have health without mental health. It's as simple as that, mm-hmm. but it's emotive and people are struggling. And I'd lost my dad, you know, to suicide a year and a bit you know, ago. So at the end of the day, I'm going to be more conscious of the mental impact Mm -hmm. of things like social isolation and particularly child suicide and all the things that we don't necessarily like to talk about, but are very much core to the experience that's coming out at the moment. So I always come from a very open, honest discourse about how I'm feeling. You don't need to agree with me, but equally I'm bruised by life having my father taken that way. And I think that if I can prevent anybody else's dad or son or daughter or mother or father or sister or brother taken away, then I'm going to stand in that truth because the poor and marginalized and the mentally ill tend to always have a really difficult deal in society. And you have to be a voice for that, even when that's uncomfortable for you. I've learned now that what saddens me, I think, about social media is I always used to think it was just a place where you could have irony and satirical humor and you could express an opinion and clearly not be saying it. Mm. Like I got into trouble for saying that I said to Boris Johnson that if he didn't provide me with the evidence of scientific tears working, then I'd throw a party and take Kate, my 82 year old neighbor. I'm hardly going to actually put mm. that to the prime minister if I'm about to do it. It was clearly and followed on by lots of tweets about how we've made social isolation compulsory and we've made family contact illegal, which are really bad for us. And if we're going to do that, you should definitely show us the cost versus benefits analysis. And also you should show us the science. Mm -hmm. If that's contentious and then you get it, Emma said that you've got to break the law. One, that's completely untrue. Secondly, it's taken out of context. Thirdly, the bigger question should be, 
why is it illegal to see people that make me feel healthy? That should be something we should be able, able to discuss, you know? Mm. Yeah. And the tier system didn't work. I mean, if we're being honest, it was, it was just a bit of a... Yeah. I mean, so even where I live, I'm in tier two, but I could drive down the road 10 minutes and yes. be in tier four. Yeah. So it just it just didn't make so it was like jumping a level. Just like what it it just didn't really no. make sense. I think that there's a real problem with people asking for evidence and then being told that they're one of the weaponized words is a lockdown skeptic. Mm. But you're not a lockdown skeptic when you've got thirty studies that have been done by very esteemed people to say that lockdowns having catastrophic impacts on our society and it's gonna cause real real problems for many years. Mm and that there should be that kind of cost versus benefit analysis. I think that that's just logic, but I don't think that logic works very well when people are scared. And I kind of think with the government, when it first happened, I genuinely think they had a really unenviable position. They didn't cause it. It wasn't their construct. It's one of those awful things that's happened. And if Boris had just allowed us to go with the initial consideration, which he did with Sweden, they went ahead and did it and have done really well. I think that, we would have lost people. So it would have been damned if he did, because then it's mm-hmm. like, well, you're responsible because we didn't have the future focus and the recognition that maybe actually it would have been a better outcome. He did what he did, but he did it too late. And we all know that. You either lock down like they did in New Zealand or you don't. You don't lock down a bit and then keep airports open or lock down in tears. It just doesn't work. So for me, ever since then, it's been okay, why are we repeating something that is considerably causing harm for many people to come? You know, I think that we need to think about redressing the balance, that's all. But I mean, yeah. everyone's entitled to an opinion. That's the irony. It's like, mm-hmm. I don't have a problem with somebody disagreeing with me. Yeah. I mean, how do you think the media's covered COVID? Because even just this week, it's like one day it's like a bit of positive news and then it's like, oh, new variant, area of concern. Today, oh, yes, the R number's below one. And, it, you know, and it's like every day seems to be just news-wise headlines for this COVID situation. Really does, really mess, can mess, especially for someone that's a bit more vulnerable, really mess with you how you're feeling. I think that people have been really traumatically affected by the news because vicarious trauma happens when you are seeing things that you might not directly experience but you feel it so like for example finding out that somebody's died and you don't know who they are but you're reading about them and you're reading about a hundred of them a day because you're seeing them all over the press and it's very centralized on this particular issue which is covid crisis so you're drawn in and it can really affect you it can make you feel really depressed compassion fatigue and burnout is something that happens with secondary vicarious trauma so that's one level the second level is i dread to think what's happened to any child who's been witnessing advertising campaigns like you can kill your granny and then the grandma dies because I can't imagine what long-lasting trauma that's going to cause but we will have done Mm. that to many kids and the newspapers they are here to sell you know they're not here to protect your mental health that's not their job they sell things by advertising in their papers so the more they can draw you in the more likely they will sell that barbecue or sell that table or sell that new item of beauty product. That's what the whole premise of a digital particular for, you know, digital paper is about particularly, you know, so it's their avenue, advertising revenue streams. They're making a killing literally. So they're not going to change up the positive news because you're actually more likely to read negative news. So that's the way when we trace the way that people look at newspapers, they go for the dark headlines, not the light ones. So Mm It's all about selling, but as a member of the public, you don't really realise that. And I've stayed off. I don't watch the BBC. I don't read newspapers. I don't do any of that because I know that's not good for my mental health. I just feel that 
the world that I inhabit is the one that I've got control over. So I'm going to try to inhabit that as positively as possible. And even online now, I think, you know, I constantly try to be a positive influence around mental health, but it really doesn't matter what you do online. Somebody is going to hate you. They're going to hate you. And it feels unusual because I wouldn't know how to hate anybody online. I just don't even know what it's like to really hate people. I just mm. think most people are pretty decent when you get to the roots of them, if that makes sense. But yeah, yeah. the press has been a bit of a, a challenging area. But then again, you know, people watch what they want to watch. So mm-hmm. we'll see. What always happens, I think, in periods of crisis is you get quite a lot of chaos and it creates a lot of growth and you get quite a lot of one direction and it creates other directions. I think we're at a difficult point. I think the point we're at now is a period of transition. I don't know where the world is going and I'm not seeking to control that. It will play out as it wishes to play out. But from it, people start thinking differently, feeling differently, exploring different avenues. And I often think that creates these splinters and those splinters grow into something pretty amazing. And you kind of see that in the way that humanity has always been. If everybody is going one way, an independent thinker will choose a different route and they'll find something amazing. And then others will see that leader and follow. So I am dealing with that gestation at the moment of just going, I can't control any of this. All I can do is control my home, my environment, my children to some degree and their happiness if I can be a positive influence there but I can't control that bigger picture. I've just got to let it play out because I think whatever it plays out as, it doesn't matter how scary that might feel at times or how wrong that might feel at times. There'll be something that comes from it that probably in 20 years, you'll be like, well, that was an amazing inception. That was an amazing origin for these incredible things that have come from this. That tends to be the way that I look at life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and what about on social media, I guess, like how that's all, I guess in a way, we're in a period where it's kind of being policed a bit more social media and I guess you know Donald Trump whatever anyone thinks of Donald Trump you know he's his views and the way he speaks is just you know isn't great we all know what he's like and you know he's someone that shouldn't be in the position he's in but is it dangerous to deplatform him and to remove his um, opinions off Twitter and things like that do you think that's a dangerous move? I mean, I didn't know a lot about Donald Trump. I did think that obviously there was some issues with the election. I think that fraud should never take place either way to anybody. I think fraud is terrible. And if there's fraud, you should always seek that out, no matter what that means. So I appreciate that there were some issues and dodginess around whatever, because it's been reported, you know, even mm-hmm. it might not have been reported widely, but it's been reported. I think in a democracy, we should really care about democratic process. I know that becomes more and more unusual because it seems that in the case of Trump, there was an absolute desire to rid him from the face of the earth. And I find that odd because to some degree, if you don't look at all views, if you sink them underground, then you cause problems. I'm like a big person who likes to see things out there. I would rather see somebody say something offensive to me that I can educate them over than actually be in a position where I want them disgraced and cancelled completely. Cancel culture, I think, is really problematic in our society. If you police people's freedom of thought, then you teach them a very clear lesson, which is that you can't have your own visions, your own hopes, your own dreams, because they might not fit with everybody else's. But if you're trying to follow everybody else's dreams, they're not going to fit with you. So in the end, you get a group think, which isn't working for the individual. So Trump, I think, probably shouldn't, to some degree, have been silenced on social media. It won't silence him. He'll find other ways. But what it will do is it would incite negativity 
two areas that we want to kind of improve connection and communication you know yeah no becomes that iconic figure yeah no I, i think as well like you know if you say he's been expressive about the steal in the vote and you know fraud and things like that and they just they seem quite keen to nip it in the bud and take off his twitter and impeach him so he can't run for office again and things like that but you know whatever your views on Donald trump he says some things where i think oh come on what are you doing but yeah, yeah but but you can't just get rid of him you know the more the more you kind of try and um, make him disappear the more his supporters are going to be a bit like there could be something in this, you know. That, that's why not hear what he has to say. Yeah, I always think Let that breeds show... conspiracy. Those kind of yeah. things will breed conspiracy, without mm. a doubt, because mm. people will be like, "Well, there must be a darker reason. There must be a deeper mm. reason." Whereas if you just let somebody be, you can always challenge them. You know, Twitter has a lot of community rules. For example, Facebook does too. You know, if he breaches them, you can definitely challenge that. I think it's a very powerful message, though. I think what they're saying is, we can control anything anyone by silencing them in that way we can do that so if you're a kid growing up and you see that the president of the united states can be taken off a social media platform and that's okay because the views were not allowed because somebody didn't like them it's almost the opposite of what we should be inspiring young people with which is this idea that you've got to learn and grow and sometimes you're going to screw up I've screwed up loads in my life. That's what I think makes me feel that even when horrible things happen to me, I'm like, okay, well, there'll be a reason for this. I'll figure it out. And I'm certainly not a Trump fan. One, because I don't even know about American politics. I'm not going to pretend. I saw so many British people putting out all these things forbidden, like they had been some kind of super fan. And I know them and they don't know anything about him. They don't know anything about his politics. They don't know anything at all. But this joining in of, you're good, you're bad. There's no nuance. I think that we've lost nuance. Nuance is everything. It's the gray area between the left and the right, the good and the bad. It's the thing that if you look into, you find the most credibility, in my opinion. I do worry that we're teaching fear. And if you teach fear, you teach people not to take risks. If you teach people not to take risks, they won't succeed in the way that they should because everything comes with risk. And it's really hard having those conversations currently because... You've got people on every extreme. You've got people who are so angry that people want their freedoms back. You've got people who are so angry that those people don't want them to have the freedoms back. You've got some people who are down a rabbit hole and believe a certain conspiracy theory that's making their lives feel horrendous because they're terrified of the future. And you've got others who are blind to it and just accepting the trauma that they're being fed. And it's all this kind of cooking pot of hostility and feelings. The one thing that you should be able to do is to look at a centralized area where people are allowed an opinion and you can draw from that the way that you feel and you can align with some of those feelings. And at the moment, I think there's a lot of real clear, you can or you can't. You know, I've spent the last few years building a social network for health and wellness. And I think part of that is because I want somebody to be able to go and have a nice conversation with somebody. And the only time you get shut down is if you're a troll. If you're a troll, you go in because that's not okay. And you've got to have some kind of policing around somebody being racist or homophobic, you know, or really aggressive towards the trans community, all of that stuff, right? You've got to have that because people need a safe place to go. But when it comes down to differences of opinions and politics, well, that's what makes the world go round. 
it really worries me if you think about a centralized system of running your thought processes because it doesn't work for individualism it's what we are we're individuals and now it's like no you've not got to be an individual you've got to be a group think well how do you cross that bridge and how does it make sense to you when that's not what you've been brought up thinking mm-hmm. yeah and i suppose going back, back to this country i mean how, how do you feel it should be police i suppose when we see people breaking the restrictions and but they're protesting because they want i suppose fair enough people want evidence that why we're in lockdown i want i want to know more why i'm in lockdown so i'm going to go and protest and you know you see videos on social media people getting arrested and stuff and you're kind of thinking obviously we don't haven't seen the whole video we don't know if there's more to it but from what i have seen you just think why are they being arrested but mm for just that freedom of being outside, not inside anywhere, visiting anyone, they're outside protesting, wanting to know more about the lockdown. And they're being arrested for that. That's, again, a dangerous thing to do. I mean, I've always been a believer that you have the right to protest because that's been the stalwart of how we've kept the people who run the countries in check. Mm. The fact that we will refuse to co-agree what they're saying and doing. Mm. So I think it's really important. I think that would be interesting to look at the way that the differences occur because, you know, if you've got BLM protesting and rightfully so and the police, you know, take the knee and then you've got the people with Extinction Rebellion doing it and being treated really well during the pandemic. But then you actually have people coming and protesting about the way that they're being locked down and they're getting more aggressively treated. Mm. I would hope that will be explored in the future. Again, I kind of have this maybe this over-optimistic belief system in humans. I think that people have been scared. They're caught in between the spotlights. You know, they really are. And some people fight, some people fly, and some people, you know, freeze. So you've got those freezing, they're at home. You've got those fighting, they're doing everything they can to get heard and doing protests. And then you've got those who are just like running. You know, they don't know what to do, how to feel, how to think. They're looking in every direction to find a way forward. But it comes down to that sense of, I don't feel I've got any control and I'm scared. So I think the very things that separate us are the very thing that should connect us. And in the long term, I believe that humans are incredibly inquisitive and curious, even though it's not felt necessarily that democratic recently. We are in a democracy. And to some degree, I think in the future, people will look back and be like, okay, we need to learn from this. You know, we need to explore why was it different when they protested to when they protested? How is this a just protest and this an unjust protest and unjust protest they're questions that will get asked but at the moment nobody's going to get those answered it's just not going to happen because there's become this idea that if you question you're a killer and that's hard for anybody to manage you know if you're Mm -hmm. being told that if you question something you could have killed somebody that really affects people and they don't want to step out of line and i completely understand that yeah no absolutely i mean do do you think we are going to have, I suppose, long-term mental health problems post this COVID. Once you know, in terms of going back to normality, whenever that might be, but has has some damage already going to be long-term, no matter what happens now. I mean, without a doubt, we've seen increases in health anxiety, OCD, eating disorders. We've got people with depression, first episodes and deeper depression if they've had depression before. High rates of anxiety, self-harm, suicidality. All of these things have exacerbated because stress, boredom, fear, they're all big motivators in distracting your behaviors. So if you're like really stressed or really bored or you're really scared, then looking for another option and things like self-medicating with alcohol, those kind of things can make a difference, Mm -hmm. even though it changes your state temporarily or eating a chocolate cake. It's not because you're failing. It's because you're trying to 
thrive in a situation that's completely inhuman so i think that we're going to see lots in fact i believe they think 10 million people are going to require mental health ongoing support well we could barely manage it before so it, it really is going to be something that has to take center stage but young people in particular you've got to think about young people living in let's say unhappy conditions in scenarios without the greatest of role models without financial support that's somewhere that holes have been blown into that education it's irreparable so we've taken people who are already behind the starting blocks and we've put them even further behind the starting blocks and they're against people who have had great parents during this time tutors probably every hour that god sends being educated effectively on a private system let's say and won't really notice that much of a difference because they've got a beautiful home and great food and all the things that go with a rich lifestyle. But they're treated the same as a kid like that. that I've just described. Mm -hmm. Like That's how our system works. It doesn't make any sense. So we've really, really ruptured and, in my opinion, ruined some children's experiences educationally to the point where it will be detrimental for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. So then that becomes detrimental to society's life. So I just don't think there's a very clear think process about the damage being done versus the benefits being gained but equally you're already going to hear the fact that if you say things like that again that can be taken out of context and people are like we well, don't really care about anybody dying of covid it's like I care about everybody that's the thing mm -hmm. it's an imperfect science the problem is when you care about everybody it's an imperfect science you have to go all right i care about everybody what is going to do the biggest damage and what is going to give us the least loss compared to the bigger loss that we could achieve. And for me, I think we've got to the point now where the benefits that lockdown has given us are going to cause more problems in the long term because we're going to have catastrophic impacts on education, social experience, psychological trauma, unemployment, poor economy, and people who are already living in poor and marginalized experiences are going to be even more poor and marginalized. I don't think that's a win for anybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, how, how have your kids been doing? Because you talk about, you know, doing their GCSE. Horribly. Like you know, it's, Horribly. it's a time of celebration for them, really. Yeah, it it's should been be. awful. Yeah. I mean, one, they'd just come out of my father killing himself. So they were just dealing with that massive trauma. He was like a really important person in their life. And mm. obviously the most loved person in my life, as simple as that. And they were dealing with that. And then lockdown happened. And at first of all, it was okay. It was a bit of a treat. You know, it was three weeks. Yeah. The end of the day, three weeks off school. No mm. big deal. I work a lot and have to because I've always been the person who earns the money in the household so essentially I've not had any time to home educate them at all they've had no help with me at all they've just been left to their own devices my youngest finds it intolerable my eldest not so badly because his girlfriend moved in with us so that she could stay for lockdowns mm. simple as that for him because he's 18 and doing his a-levels it's easier because he's got kind of a friendship with his girlfriend. She's lovely. She's very good in our house. She's lovely with him. So they have like a nice opportunity to kind of feel a little bit outside of that, enjoying their relationship. My youngest son has just been on his own the whole time. It's horrific. And he hates mm -hmm. it. And he said, there's no point in the future. And I completely concur when he says that. And I have to say to him, that's exactly how it feels. It does feel that way. And that's okay, but it won't be but it's trying to help young people see that what should have been one of the most exciting times of their lives, you know, this year he should have been going to a festival for the first time with his mm. brother, you know, this year he should have been going to prom, this year he should have gone to Iceland and it's all been taken away from him. This year he should have done his GCSEs, had a leavers do and had lots of fun with his mates. And now he doesn't even believe that he can trust this country anymore. 
So he's not alone and he's got me as a mother and I'm pretty well adjusted and I do a lot of that. We will always find a way. You know, when he says there's no hope, the UK is going to be awful. It's going to be a terrible place to live. I'll go, well, okay, we won't live in the UK anymore. There'll always be an opportunity. We'll always find a system. We'll always find a way. But that's somebody like myself. A lot of people won't have that solidity and won't come up with those suggestions. You know, for me, my kids' happiness is everything. So if they're not happy, we won't be here. We'll mm -hmm. be somewhere else, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, it's just a sad thing to to even say, isn't it? Like, if, yeah. you know, if our country is so bad, we're going to have to just go. Yeah. But, it, but it's just, it's it, the, mo the majority of the country must be feeling like that. Whether you're pro-lockdown or not pro-lockdown or feel like things could be handled better, everyone should be, you know, I think everyone is going to be feeling this way in a minute. Like, Yeah, there's no winners. There's very, yeah, there's no positivity. There's, there's some winners. I guess there's some winners. I guess there are some winners, if I'm honest. I was going to say there are no winners, but that would be a lie. There are winners because they reckon that there's an extra £2.72 billion that's been saved during lockdown. So some people have done relatively well from a collapsing system in my point of view. I don't think that being kept from your family is ever nice. But let's just say you've had quite a nice experience. You live in a lovely area. You've not had to do the commute. You're living with your partner you've got a nice amount of money coming in every month and you've not had to go to work for over a year nearly like that's going to be something that probably reduces your stress levels so understandably you're not going to be chomping at the bit to get back to the office running the office slog are you mm. i get that and then financially you might have a little nest egg now so again that's fine but it's a tale of two cities isn't it because on the other side there's three million people who've had no help who are losing their homes and are financially bankrupt because of it so i can never enjoy anything at the moment because even if I get a job all I think about is the fact that somebody else hasn't got a job so there's literally for me it's just the worst time because I don't see anything apart from the worst case scenario and I see it all the time and I feel it all the time and I experience it all the time from suicidal children through to people telling me that they're going to have to put their homes for sale people who've lost all the businesses and have not had one penny's worth of support so you either have a supportive government or you don't have a supportive government if some of you have been supported you can arguably say I felt supported by my government but if then you find out that your neighbor has had no financial help and is losing everything you have to say arguably this country hasn't treated people fairly. It's not been supportive. And again, why aren't we seeing that on the TV? Why aren't we hearing that constantly on the news? Why aren't we watching that all the time? Because they're questions that need to be asked. Either we are a democratic, equal country that looks after its people equally, or we're not. And we're not at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, going back to, I suppose, the mental health of, of young people, um, I mean, obviously, a couple I don't know how long ago it was now we had the horrible news about Caroline Flack and you, oh, know, how, no. you know and how she lost her life and and when we think about the reality tv shows like Love Island there's been a couple of contestants that were on that show yeah that Sophie died, yeah. Life. yeah and um you know it was interesting it's not even Kirk, Love Island yeah, what was yeah. I've forgotten the second guy's name yeah. it's Sophie um, yeah. I mean Love Island tends to be the show that we refer to but even I had Jess and Piazzi on the show and she was on X of the Beach. Oh, I love X Jess. She's yeah. lovely. She was on X of the Beach and she was kind of saying, you know, she kind of had that moment of being this, becoming this personality for X on the Beach, you know, because, you know, the cameras wanted her to do that and have that, you know, and then she was kind of relevant for a while and like, get you know, quite in the public eye and this was the personality that, you know, was kind of given to her that people expected her to be. But then after a while, all that kind of fame, I suppose, just that level of it anyway, just went away. And for her, she was a bit like, what do I do now? I'm not sure who I, who I, even I am anymore. Do you think 
those shows, I mean, Caroline Flack's a different story to some of the contestants, but do you think that fame and that pressure does can get to the for vulnerable minds can be very dangerous? Oh, I mean, I can't imagine how challenging it would be for everybody to know who you are after a very short period of time. I think that those shows are deliciously fun to watch. I mean, I do. I'm not going to deny it. My youngest son got really into Love Island about four four years ago and forced me into watching it constantly. And in the end, I was drawn in and was interested in who was going to work out. You know, I don't do psychological evaluations on people in reality TV because I don't feel that I can, in good faith, do it in a way that I would be sure that I couldn't promise that there was damage to them, if that makes sense. So I won't do them. No offense against anybody who doesn't. It's just a personal thing. But I think that you need fame coaching. I think you need a really good accountant. And I think you need a really good agent who can manage you in a way that when you get out, you've got an understand, excuse me, (laughs) excuse me, when you get out, First of all, before you go in, it should be very clear how challenging it can be to be famous. Secondly, when you come out, you should have people manage your accounts, finances, because you're going to earn a lot of money, but you're going to spend a lot of money unless somebody's managing it for you. And you should definitely have a fame coach all the way through so that you don't burn out, so that you understand you don't have to do every PA appearance. And so when it ends, okay, it's been a ride. You've had 12 months. You've got a great influencer platform, so therefore you can make money from brands. But on top of that, you've got all that lovely nest egg of money that was in that particular financial advisor's interest accounts, you know, whatever they are. And you're going to be able to buy a house and live quite comfortably for the rest of your life. That's how it should be done. I think until that's achieved, you're always going to have people who fall. And the thing about things like Love Island is, you know, when you want fame, most of the time you're used to rejection because you'll have become a singer or a dancer or an actress or an actor and you'll have gone and you'll have been rejected like a million times. And so by the time you're accepted, you used to being bruised, which means that you're used to that acceptance of the fact that you've had to build your talent and grow your skills to get where you are. So then you don't feel like you're on foundations of sand. When you've been in something like Love Island, even though it's great fun, you come out, you haven't necessarily got a talent to attach it to. That doesn't mean you're not talented. But if you come out of Love Island and then you're like, I'm a singer, you're going to be marked with the, you're actually a Love Island contestant. Now, mm. Jess is kind of a good example of somebody who's managed to go through all the horrible times and then be resilient and be like, I want to be an actress. This is what I want to do. You know, she's really good at acting. And so she had to like almost get famous, deconstruct the fame, go through shedding the fame and then come back out and go back into what she really wanted to do. Mm-hmm because she wanted to be an actress you know she's a great actress and she's written a book she's found a way through it her talent existed but it was almost a mismatch when she went and did what she did the mismatch caused her the problem in her real career which is what she's succeeding in now but yeah it's really hard I couldn't imagine being known in the way that those people are known it's Mm -hmm. such a challenge yeah, and I suppose with Caroline Flack, it was more of a media thing, I guess. I just getting... feel really sorry for Caroline. Yeah, just I going do. into her personal life, wasn't it? I think that was just, you know, she sort of... it was. It's weird, because like when she sort of became famous, the media kind of lifted her up, like she was this bubbly presenter that we yeah. all like to see on TV. And then it was like all stuff in her personal life when she started dating the guy, Harry Styles, and, you know, people attacked her then, and they attacked her with her personal relationship, the, the last one that she had, so... It was just it was just a strange way that the media dealt with things like that. And they need I don't know, do you think they need to be held accountable more? 
I don't think you'll ever hold the papers accountable because these days it's opinion pieces, not fact pieces. Mm. So you can write whatever you want. See what I've had written about me recently. It's all bollocks, mm. but it doesn't matter. Yeah. People just make it up. You know, somebody decides that they want to get you. They get you, they create a story. They can do whatever they like. There are occasional ones where they can't and I've pushed back on certain things and not been able to. But the point is that once they're gunning for you, they gun for you. And with her, it was the fact that particularly from the channel's point of view, you know, she was accused of something that I don't believe was true, but was quite heavy. And, you know, she couldn't have worked during that period of time purely because on a legal issue, you've got to wait for the outcome. It's like that. Same with Ant when he had that. Mm -hmm. But it was the invasion of the privacy that I think would have been just unbelievably catastrophic for her. I mean, I've had it where, like I said, when you end up in something like the Mail on Sunday and it's just a load of lies. Mm -hmm. It's really shocking. And I'm quite lucky in the fact that I don't feel like I'm part of that world. It's just not my world. You know, I always do my job. I do my mental health stuff. I do my app stuff. I do my TV stuff. But I don't really see it as my job. I see mental health as my job. So no matter what people say about me, it doesn't change what I'm good at doing, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm she was like this amazing presenter and she was really well loved and she was really pocket rocket. And then to have all of that kind of suddenly gone with all of this other side of you just portrayed, particularly when it's self-harm orientated, you know, that's a horrible thing to have out there. It's private. Mm -hmm. I do think that the press will always publish what we want to read. And it's interesting at a time of censorship when nobody's allowed an opinion, where you're almost castrated instantly, if you step out of the line it doesn't seem to hold true for the newspapers or for certain celebrities with respect. It seems that people are publicly allowed to troll other people if they have a certain voice in the media. And that's something that I think is a sad lesson to teach our children. I think our children should be taught compassion and really thinking about impact. I'm really proud of my children. My children are the children that when they hear about a friend who might not seem as happy, they ring them, they text them, they call them immediately because they know that things can go wrong. My son's really close friend killed himself four weeks ago and he's really sad that he didn't get to know that there was something going on for him because he didn't mm. know. But whenever they see anything coming up, they're always the first one to reach out. And I do that. It's the way I've been brought up. You know, you just reach out, even if it's a stranger. But it seems sadly lacking in our world at the moment, that compassion. It really yeah. does. Yeah. And do you think people are starting to, I guess more so with guys, um, being oh, I able think to, it's really hard for guys. To be open. Yeah. I mean, cause, I mean, I mean, I'm 31 years old. And I've known five people that have sadly took their own life. Oh, one my was God. A, one was a girl who had been struggling for a long time and she'd wrote books and articles about her mental health and anorexia. And but sadly, she lost the battle. But the four guys that I know that ended their own life, no warnings, just like that, gone. And just like, what? How did they, And do you think slowly guys are able to talk about that a bit more but it just yeah for the guys it just seems like it's a weakness thing like you're admitting defeat or it's like yeah. an embarrassment and do you think it is do you think it's oh better for i mean men, or? i think it's so complex the landscape of suicidal behaviors i think first of all that men are brought up still with a schema where they're meant to be able to handle it it's one of those things that we just kind of indoctrinate in young men which we shouldn't but we do, and it's not purposeful a lot of the time. It's just our own stereotypes that make it happen. Simple ex 
simple even in my own life if I'm really honest with you why do I think that my husband would put the bins out and not me I mean it's a ridiculous stereotype isn't it that he'd do that and I might go and make the tomato sauce doesn't really make any sense it's not based in any reality but it's kind of what you're programmed with so it, essentially I think men from an early age are not brought up with the same emotional literacy in the UK in the states it's different in the states there's a much more emotionally literate society they talk mm. about the feelings more but then that comes on to the other point we pay a lot of attention to talking about mental health but we don't actually do it so like <clears throat> we say to people what you want to do is you want to talk about your mental health reach out ask for help but there isn't anywhere to go like there isn't very many places to go. It's not like you can walk into a community center like you used to be able to and go up to somebody like in the eighties, you could literally go into a community center locally and have a cup of tea and a biscuit. And you could go to a church and do the same. We've kind of closed down social interaction a lot over the years. Okay, it's now amplified beyond belief because everything's closed. But what makes people healthy is community and connection. And I think there's been an eradication of community and connection and also belongingness and reason, purpose. So I think that men have gone through a very complex landscape. You know, the last 30 years, I think there's been an eradication of men's roles because women are you know, becoming more and more equal and rightfully so. But actually when you engender a whole belief system and stereotype in a particular gender and go, this is what you do, this is what you stand for. And then we take it away bit by bit. It's like, well, okay, what, what is it now? What is my role? What am I meant to do? And mm. because we've not necessarily allowed young men to grow up as the individuals that they deserve to become. And certainly when you look at poor communities, you know, a lot of these young men who are mentally not very well have had really hard lives as well. So there's like other problems like trauma. Then when do you begin to talk about it? And who do you begin to trust to talk about it? And then if you talk about it, what if the person that you're talking to doesn't connect with it? Or if you get a referral to a professional, but it's going to take two years to get a therapy session. So it's all very well that we talk about talking about it, but what are we doing about it? That's the bit that I kind of have a mismatch over. I talk about it a lot. I can see what I'm doing about it is I'm running free sessions. What I'm doing about it is I'm building a free wellness app so that people don't have to pay for things. What we're doing about it, I'm writing things so that people kind of read my information and get some advice and help. I'm trying to actively do something that can help people reach. I think that we need to do more of that. Our services need to be doing far more to actually bring men into a position where they feel entitled to have those conversations. And suicidal behavior is when we feel that there's no other way, there's no other escape. So what is it that we should provide? And we need to provide an escape. Like if this life isn't working, then people kill themselves, not the life, but the life is what needs to change. So I think that we're not educating people in that. It's like, okay, you feel like you don't want to be here. You want to take your own life. And it makes sense because you're scared and you're lonely and you're isolated and you think to yourself, that's an easy escape route for me in this moment in time. Not easy as in the action, but easy as in that's the one that I can see will give me a direct exit from this scenario. Mm. We should be saying, no, that's, the actual thought process of trying to find a way of escaping, but you're looking in the one direction that is permanent and won't actually give you the answers that you seek because you're still seeking answers. When you're seeking escape, you're seeking answers. Our job as a society should be cradling men and women, but men because they're the bigger dynamic of killing themselves with this knowledge that it's okay to really hate the life you're living. It's okay, we'll change it. We'll figure it out. But where are we going to send those people? Because when people tell me they're suicidal, my answer will always be the same. Well, have you tried like being with an orangutan reserve? Have you gone and worked, you know, overseas building wells for kids in Africa? And when they say no, it's like, yeah, that's right. Because you haven't tried everything. There's so many more things to try. What they're saying is I don't have anything but this limited perspective. And my job is to help people see that there is a 
unlimited perspective and it's harder now than ever because I can't do that classic let's change your life because what is there mm -hmm. to change at the moment and I do yeah. think that's where we're going to get a massive problem and they're saying to some degree from research that they don't believe suicide has gone up. I don't know how they've said that because of the fact that there's a lag massively with suicide because of coroner's inquests. Mm -hmm. Even if it hadn't gone up, which to be fair would be a big win because who wants suicide to go up? But if it hasn't gone up, that doesn't mean that there won't be more problems in the future. Like I said, I can't comment on whether that research is just true or whether it's just been methodologically flawed to a point where they've purposely chosen figures and people and situations who weren't having the problems to the degree that they could have if they'd looked elsewhere and have peddled that out to try and go, oh, it's everything's okay. I don't know. We'll find that out in time. But for me, I will be surprised if we don't see an increase in suicidality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, one video that I found helpful in my mental health was... Um, you know, sort of going back to that being a guy and whether you feel you can share it or not. But there's a video, of, and I've referred it to a few friends that have been interested in it, of The Rock. And The Rock is a video, and he's like the most hetero, you know, the most macho guy. He's great. You, you know, the guy we could think of. There's a video of him on YouTube going, I had depression. Yeah. This is how I dealt with it. It's okay. You're not alone. And that's The Rock saying that. And it's like, you know, if The Rock is probably the most alpha male in the world, can say that, you know, you, should, you shouldn't feel ashamed to. No, and I, and I feel that's a really, a really um, important video. I agree, and you shouldn't yeah. feel defined by it either. That's the thing, mm -hmm. you know. When people say I've got that anxiety, I've got depression, it's like, well, it's a part of you. It's not what you are. You know, you're mm -hmm. so much more. Like I said, it's been a really weird time because all the things that I would usually suggest to human beings to do to be well has been removed. So even I, in my toolkit, I can't tell people to do the normal things that I tell them to do because they're not allowed to do the things that would get them to feel better. Yeah. It's yeah. like having emotional asthma at the moment. Mm -hmm. It really is. It's like, I can yeah, see really. what needs to change, but I can't make it change. And mm -hmm. I can't break rules because obviously that would see me doing damage to myself because of the problematic behaviors around me of people going, Oh, she's done this. She's done this. So I can't even advise people to do things that I might do if I were not in the position that I'm in. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, just got to follow get on with protocol haven't we doesn't mean i like it doesn't mean i agree with it doesn't mean i don't think there's going to be massive damage because of it doesn't mean that i won't be sat gladly in two years watching exposés on what we should have done because i trust humans as much as there's a lot of nastiness and toxicity on places like twitter in particular it's a cesspit as far as nastiness is i do trust human beings i think that we're you know a spectacular race and we've got to do better because we're losing people that we shouldn't be losing Mm -hmm. and that's one of the things mental health wise that I'm constantly conscious of yeah and I, I wanted to talk to you about your um uh, your, your, your crime documentaries that, that, <laughs> you, that you've been doing yes and yeah, I've been on YouTube seeing your videos and things I mean is there one particular case that you think has been the most shocking to cover I mean the Chris Watts one recently was an awful yeah awful story I mean that was dark and then I mean, I had um, I was talking to Anne Widdicombe yesterday, and she but she was a part of the um, Mick Philpot. Yes, she was. Yeah, yeah. So we we spoke we covered we spoke about that briefly yesterday, and um, I mean, but is there a particular story that really? Was I mean, there are so many, but I would yeah. say John Wayne Gacy, who I've covered mm -hmm. recently, it's not out yet, but John Wayne Gacy, he makes my skin crawl. Mm -hmm. He really does because he killed so many young men and so horribly and also to be honest dharma 
mean, Dharma killed 17 and raped millions. I mean, I don't even want to imagine the amount. And I guess that the cases back then, what is chilling for me is that because they didn't really piece things together, there was never a piecing together of crimes. If you were on one state and then went to another, like take, for example, John Wayne Gacy or the clown killer, he was known, or the killer clown. He had Patch and he had Pogo. These two kind of characters, one was quite serious, one was quite fun, although very, very scary. Kind of what a lot of the killer clowns that you've seen in modern day, like It, are based on. Mm -hmm. He went to prison for 10 years for basically raping a young man and two young men he sexually assaulted, but actually got out of after 18 months because of good behavior. Can you imagine that? And then he moved back to where he lived originally. And that meant that nobody traced him. He just got left off and carried on. And that's really how that began to spiral to a position where we know people are horribly murdered in the way that they were. The brazenness of those times, yeah, that's terrifying because it, you can see that serial killing was a lot more possible based on the fact that people didn't have connected security systems. You couldn't go online and check whether somebody had been done for something before. So those stick out of my mind because of the gruesomeness and the gratuitousness and the incidences of those murders. You know, you're talking Gacy in his 30s body count and you're talking mm -hmm. Dharma at, le at least 17. I dread to think, really, but at least. And they were so proficient. They were just so proficient, you know, from a very early age. You had Dharma knowing how to just totally deconstruct the human body you know, because he practiced on animals and all those things. And you're like, wow, you know, when you're looking at the psychopathy scale and you're going, these guys were just ticking every box, even as kids, all had serious kind of like, Gacy had serious head injuries. There were all these kind of things. And you're like, wow, these days have we learned? I don't know whether we've learned yet. I think there's still potential for serial killers to be out there. But anything that involves children as well. I have a really big problem with any child killing. So there were lots, really. I have a I mean, list. The Chris Watson one's just... To me, like watching that, um, there's that documentary on Netflix that I watched as well, the, the Chris, the Chris Watts documentary. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, as someone that specialises in it, what is going on in someone's head like that to feel like, rather than not get to divorced, you right, yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> just leave. That, yeah, yeah. That kill your wife and your two daughters. I mean, and an unborn son. And an unborn son. Yeah. I mean, yeah. How does that happen? I mean, <laughs> I think Chris Watson is the new breed of psychopath. I think he's been schooled very efficiently from Netflix and all the documentaries that help people kind of associate with characters. So mm. empaths are people like me, you, where we care compassionately about people. And then psychopaths are kind of the extreme opposite, aren't they? I think that one of the things that's transitioned a great deal is that people like Chris Watts will have observed people interacting normally. If that makes sense, there's so many now characters that you can go online and watch. Whereas back in the 60s, 50s, you know, TV didn't really offer you those in-depth analysis of different people's characters. So I think Watts is an example of what happens when somebody lives a life where they can constantly watch great TV, great characters and almost take on some of those roles. And therefore, it's far more difficult to spot. Even the police, in fact, said that they could not believe he was the liar. He couldn't they couldn't believe that he'd done it. It just didn't sit with him. They went and interviewed him for weeks, you know, afterwards at the prison, after he'd been sent down. And he was very willing to talk about it. And, of course, he's found God now, because they all do, don't they? You know, they either do these horrible things and then they tend to find God and it'll all be fine because they've got to trust that somehow they've been forgiven for these heinous crimes. And who knows? I don't know. I'm not there to judge them in that way. But Chris Watts was not scary compared to when you look at people like Gacy and 
Nielsen and Dharma, but definitely scary when you look at how he managed to be the wolf in sheep's clothing. He definitely did. Mm. And he's a classic in many ways regarding the fact that you look at him, whatever he wanted, he wanted. You know, she was, you know, Shanae was an amazing woman. She'd create her own business. She got an amazing home that she paid for herself. And the reason he killed her and her kids was because he just wanted a completely new start. And that's the thing about people who do something like, you know, patricide, where you're going to kill your family. You're going to do it because you can see the benefits. And the benefit was he got to be with his lover and have money. And that's how it works. So, you know, we can emotionally explore it any way we want, but it will come down to that factor. It would be easier for him if he did not have his gorgeous family and he had a bit of cash. That was it. Yeah. That's the decision that somebody would make. Yeah. I was shocked to hear that apparently in prison he gets fan mail. Of course. Oh, it's full. women. Of course, if, if, look, for some bizarre reason, there are women out there who like the idea that their partner will be locked up for life. Maybe they've had terrible relationships. Mm-hmm. Maybe they believe that they can be the difference and heal somebody. Maybe they just don't want to worry about where they've gone on a Saturday night and mm-hmm. they just think that's a safe bet. He looks like he's normal. He's quite a reasonable looking guy. He's soft-spoken. He's mm. very able to own, in inverted commas, his crimes by saying that, you know, something dark took over him that night. Well, yeah, it was you, love. You took over it yourself because mm. you wanted to selfishly kill your children. And also, it doesn't help to some degree that he's got quite a lot of family support. So, like, I love my boys. They're my life. If, he, if one of my boys killed my grandchildren and his wife in cold blood, I would not see my child again. Hmm. I couldn't imagine supporting anybody in that way because they've crossed a moral boundary that is not acceptable under any reasonable circumstances. Okay, if he'd killed her in a crime of passion, strangled her after a big violent row, I might have seen it in my heart to manage to go and visit him. But the minute you take those children's lives, no, you don't deserve a visit off anybody. Hmm. So there's a lot of mixed messages for that man. He's relatively attractive, so people like him. They all think that she was a horrible cow, even though she wasn't. Mm. And they've decided that he just snapped in a moment. You know, he didn't. Those deaths were done over a period of hours, and those girls witnessed each other being murdered. You know, it's mm-hmm. horrible. Yeah. And then, I guess, going to the, the Mick Philpot case, I saw that his um, his wife... Yeah. yeah, she got released recently, didn't she, from prison? I yeah. mean, was she just someone that was... A, I think Anne Widdicombe said it quite well, actually. She sort of said, in Mick Philpott's head, you know, everyone that surrounded him, even his kids, were just characters in the Mick Philpott show. She's right. She's absolutely right. I think that's that's brilliantly put. She's great, Anne Widdicombe. You know, she says exactly. Anne Widdicombe could probably be doing running the country because she'd probably have everything sorted by now. (laughs) She's just one of those people, isn't she? But she got it right. That's what a psychopath is like. And Mick's Mm. a psychopath. I mean, he was a psychopath from the beginning. He, at a very young age, 19 stabbed his then girlfriend and her mother and thought he killed them you know he thought he'd killed them and the fact that he got out so quickly is unbearable to me i don't think for one minute that he was imagining when he set fire with that accelerant in the hall that it was going to spread in the way that it did Mm. i think that he was too stupid to plan that way he was meant to save the day like go out there and be super dad, save the kids from this horrible ex-partner. I think he just imagined that they all get saved and then Mm. they get a new council house and his ex-partner might get into trouble for it, right? I mean, the planning was terrible because it takes about eight seconds for somebody with that kind of knowledge to turn Mm. up at a house and go, well, hang on, how come you're outside? Mm. Do you know what I mean? 
I mean, what, what were you doing? Why are you outside of this house that's on fire mm. where the entry is now completely blocked? But I just think that somebody like him, he's always been about being famous for something, you know, whether it's lots of children, whether it's been on Jeremy Kyle, whether it's doing a documentary with Anne Wickham, or whether it's indeed setting fire to your house and then doing this massive shit show of a kind of, look at me, thank you, everybody. You've been amazing. You've all helped mm -hmm. really hard. That's one of the things that blows my mind in press conferences. My advice to anybody who's done a murder or a serial killing or done something wrong, don't do a press conference. They'll mm -hmm. absolutely know straight away. It's like the golden rule. Never do a press conference if you're guilty. You'll be shown to be guilty straight away. And he did. Mm -hmm. He was. Yeah. It's like that Ian Huntley one as well. And he sort of Again, says, he gets caught, gets caught absolutely. saying, talk about them in the past tense. They're like, that's how they were like, oh, wait, that's thing we should probably look at and that's how they found always it. always the person who's trying to be the most helpful always becomes mm. a suspect every mm. time of course why would you be so helpful what's yeah. what does it mean to you is it your daughter your sister your brother your mother if it's not why are you so interested in this that's one of the classic faux pas of murderers they yeah. often like to get involved in it so to speak yeah and when, when you go back and look at i guess the jimmy savile stuff like Ugh. i mean when I was, I was re oh, that, that the, I'll tell you what, the Jimmy Shavell stuff is, it's offensive because he was protected by people who should have absolutely well, that's the held thing. into how, account. How did he... It's like when you watch that Louis Farouk documentary of him, it's almost just like, how did... It's saying, notice me, notice it? me. Yeah, look what I'm yeah, doing, yeah. I can do this. It's how brazen yeah. I can be. Because people are scared of money and power. Mm -hmm. White men, money, power. I mean, I'll probably get into trouble for saying that because I get called anti-man. I'm not anti-man at all. I'm not anti-white. I'm saying there was a period of time where if you were a very rich white man in power, you were pretty untouchable. Mm -hmm. And that's played out so many times. Epstein's a great example. And again, he'll just be a drop in the ocean, just a drop in the ocean. You know, the idea, that, oh, we've cleared up. Mm -hmm. There we go. We've cleared up Hollywood. Epstein's gone. It's like, no, the Weinsteins, the Epsteins, all of them. There are millions of them, millions mm -hmm. of them. And we're not very good at facing it. And Jimmy Savile basically demonstrates how a corporation and a cooperation of people around him can allow somebody to get away with the most vulnerable attacks that you cannot believe that he abused. Usually just to say, this isn't my area of forensic, but I'm very read up on these areas because it's something that I work in quite a lot regarding my TV stuff and also because I work with a lot of trauma and victims. But I have in my entire career never met somebody who abuses somebody from five to 85. Like his yeah. thing wasn't who you were. It was how vulnerable you were. That was the bit that he liked. It wasn't that you were a particular type. It was that access to you and your position of vulnerability. And then he went for it. Oh, he was absolutely hideous. And again, there are so many of people like him. It's mm. as simple as that. I was going to say, do, do you think he was almost tip of an iceberg to some, yes. to some degree like yes. he was i mean because i've known people that work in the bbc around that time when he was doing top of the pops and spoken to someone and he said everyone spoke about it yeah everyone sort of knew and it and when don't even you people think that's say, the thing complicity is everything collusion yeah. is everything right now look at the collusion look at the complicity look at how people condemn those who go against the grain that's an mm. example of how power dynamics work there is power and then there is truth. And power and truth often do not sit in the same place. But power can take truth and distort it or crush it. That's the way it works. So if you're a 12 year old kid and you say to Jimmy Savile, you're gonna to go to the police, he would say he'd sue your family. The police wouldn't listen to you because you're a kid and the BBC would protect him. Mm -hmm. So 
truth becomes irrelevant. And actually, that's one of the things about modern day society. Truth does not matter anymore. Like take, as we were saying at the beginning, my tweets. Truth says, irony, truth says a string of things that I was saying about tears being scientifically evidenced. That's truth. The reality is, power says, no, it's not. You said you were going to break the rules and throw a party. Hmm. Now that's truth. But it isn't. Power crushes truth. But truth is truth. And that's the key. Anybody listening to this, that's what you should always think about. Just because people say things are, that's not enough to accept they are. Always look for the truth because it's often very distorted. Yeah. And I, I suppose, how do you think the truth lied with Michael Jackson, I suppose? Oh, like, it's a difficult it's, one, that. Yeah, Honestly, it's such, gonna, a, complicate, such yeah. a complicated one. I'm going to be honest and say that if I was in a judge and jury situation mm. and I saw those boys talking about it as young men talking mm. about what happened and saw all the weirdness associated with him, I may well have gone guilty, right? Mm. I may well have because I think that there were some unusual things happening there. But equally, he was a very unusual human. Mm -hmm. So I can only ever say I would come down on the fact that maybe in a situation in court, I would go, oh, this feels like a lot of evidence there that feels a little bit on the edge of being something very dark. Equally, it would depend who was prosecuting and what I was listening to and who was defending. But when I looked at the going to Neverland, you know, that particular mm. documentary, I was very compelled by the boys who spoke. Mm. I really was. But I don't know. I said in my video when I did a video about him that I'd probably have gone guilty, but at the end of the day, I will never know. And I still think I have to hold it to that point. I think he was a horribly abused man. I think that he had massive psychological distress. I think he was surrounded by people who should have taught him what was right and wrong and no one yes, instead of just letting him willfully destroy his estate and you know really cause himself harm with medical interventions and plastic surgery. You know, he was one of the most talented men I think the world has ever seen in the music industry. There was something mm. unique and special and beautiful about him. And yet he ended up a caricature of himself. And now there's a divide, you know, those who believe he was an abuser and those who believe he's an amazing musician. And I don't think I need to think about either of those, if that makes sense. I can't prove one, but I can mm. definitely say his music was amazing, even though yeah. I think that there was a strangeness. And certainly I don't think it's acceptable for boys of young age to be sleeping in a stranger's bed with an older man, I think that that comes down to the parents, though. Mm. You would yeah, never especially have... when the first there had been that first accusation, right? And then years later, for parents to still right. allow them to be in that situation. Just full stop. I mean, if some random guy, no matter how famous he is, is like, "Hey, can I have your kid in bed with me today at like 11? Mm. No. You can't. I don't care if you're going to eat jelly beans and ice cream. It's still not an acceptable lesson to teach my child. And that's even if Michael was completely innocent. It's not an acceptable lesson to teach a child. You know, that's not having boundaries. And like, mm -hmm. this is the thing about money. That's what I'm saying, though. Money and power. If you have money and power, everything is achievable for so many. Because many people will agree because you're wealthy and you're powerful and you can pay for it. Yeah. I think with Michael Jackson as well, you just, you'd never want to be that famous, right? You just... Oh, horrendous. Yeah. yeah it's, it's he, was, he should have been protected a lot more, Michael Jackson. I always feel like Michael Jackson yeah. was let down. I think he was abused horribly by the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, love his music as well, but like watching... like you Oh, said, yeah, that, he's an um, amazing musician. Watching that Leaving Neverland documentary, you kind of see some clips of in Neverland and you're thinking, they are all boys that he's with. There's not any girls there. And then it's like, and they're all like 
actor look sort of like very pretty boys they're not like yeah. you know they're all sort of like hollywood style kid actors very pretty boys yeah. that he's with and you kind of think oh i don't know but then you kind of go back and you see some of the cases like the i i was convinced to set the court the court case he actually got found not guilty with i was convinced that that one didn't happen because they just they sort of blew the family up and said they made accusations against celebrities before they tried using a playboy magazine as evidence to say he was a pervert because that shows he's a straight guy if anything so but then there are other things where you kind of think yeah it's like saying it's okay to sleep with kids in the bed and the geordie chandler and the yeah like taking him to what the grammys and having him on his sat on his knee it's a weird 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 one I'm not i don't think we'll ever know will we no and that's the thing i think you're like me in the fact that there's no point in me going oh he was guilty or he was innocent it's just like what we know was it was strange and yeah. it felt strange but then maybe he should have had people saying well that's not okay and even mm. on his best day and it was just that he was a lovely guy who loved kids you know that could have been the case it could genuinely have been that he felt more at home with those kids Still, somebody should have been saying, Michael, we need to talk about this and we need to help you move through this so you can have relationships with people your own age that are trusting. Because, mm. you know, you look at the fact that his own children definitely felt like he was a good dad. You know, there's mm. no denying that. They've yeah. all talked about that. They felt him to be very loving. Everything was great fun with him. And they've been denied a father as well because of the way that that particular celebrity was used as mm -hmm. a payment card for many people. So I have empathy and sympathy with him no matter what. Yeah, he should never have done that. That concert was never going to happen, was it? No. They, was, they, they were saying like... And he should never have done that interview as well with Martin Bashir. I mean, it was oh, just yeah, no, awful. Yeah. I mean, that This Is It, and it's true, that This Is It movie he did where it shows him rehearsing for the, the comeback tour, I suppose. There was someone that's saying, well, yeah, it's wonderfully edited, that, that video. But if you watch it, he never gets through one song. He's no. wearing different outfits throughout one song because they're yeah. just clips that are all brought together. Yeah, they're saying yeah he could he couldn't he was needing oxygen after certain things and he's like crying and like shivering like he keep like it was wonderfully edited but like he was not well and like I think people around that performance knew that yeah the future of the shows are in trouble. It happens all the time. Yeah. It happens all the time. You know that's yeah. the way that the pressure of the press and people feel that they have to earn money and keep up a lifestyle even against their own health and wellness and sadly yeah. it's the way that it works yeah well emma it's been amazing talking to you um, reflected today. reflected yes i mean how do you think we should i suppose emerge from covid how do you hope that we emerge from covid that we realize the one thing that we've learned is that we've got to work much harder to be part of a social community that we've got to be kinder and that all the things that we've had taken away from us such as being allowed out, being allowed to socialize in our local areas, being able to connect with our neighbors and friends. They're things that we should treasure and make sure never get taken away from us again, ever, yeah. under any circumstances. Yeah, Emma, take care and my love to you and your family. I hope you, your, you. Your, your kids are able to go out there and celebrate their exams and see their friends soon. Thanks for having me. Cheers, thank you. Take care, love. So a wonderful chat there with Emma Kenny. Thanks so much for her for coming on. I've been trying to get her on for a while, actually. So, yeah, it was great to finally get Emma on and have a chat for, with her. Uh, it's really great to have someone that's really true and honest honest um, with her beliefs. And, um, yeah, I think we need more people like that to listen to. Uh, we don't have to agree with them, but it's, um, you know, it, it's good to to have someone that's, that's um, true to herself and true to her opinions. Um, but anyway... 
there we go. Series series two, season two, all all in the bag, all in a in the can. Um, I want to thank everyone that's tuned in, everyone that's subscribed. Please make sure you subscribe and support us in any way you can. Um, be sure to follow us on social media. You can follow us on Twitter at Shapes of Stories. You can follow me on Twitter under L Prestige Seven. You can follow me on Instagram under Prestige Books, and you can follow us on our Facebook pages, um, the Shapes of Stories on Facebook and Lawrence Prestige on Facebook. And you can follow me on my website and find out more about my books, uh, LawrencePrestige.com. And you can um, Google me and find out more about my books and uh, my work and um, book reviews and things like that. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for everyone that's tuned in. Um, you know, like I said, it's going to be a short break. We'll be, back, we'll be back sooner than you think with more wonderful episodes, more wonderful, interesting people working on to get some great guests for you guys. And yeah, just thanks again for all your support. Um, be back with you very soon. We've got a roadmap now, to, sort of out of lockdown into some i guess back to some formal normality um but yeah you know I, I look forward to having that journey with you and hopefully um you know we're on the road on the road to peace on the road to normality and um yeah and uh, and i hope to share that journey with you as we, as we as we continue to have this fight against uh covid this awful covid19 and this uh, pandemic but anyway, stay safe, everyone. You know, it's uh, don't give up. We're always here um, if you want to talk to anyone. But there's some wonderful organisations out there that are always willing to help as well. Um, don't give up. Don't quit. And um, we'll get through this. We're nearly there. Stay safe. And I'll speak to you again very soon.